And so Article 9 remains to be, you know, on the books, and it's a constraint. It doesn't constrain people as much as you think, because Japan has a military despite saying it doesn't have a military. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Soch Podcast. This is Major Haas Yano, an instructor of American politics at the U.S. Military Academy, West Point, and a producer for this podcast series. I've got a fun episode lined up today with Professor Steve Sademan from Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, not to be mistaken with Carleton College in Minnesota, though both are excellent academic institutions. Professor Sademan is the Patterson Chair in International Affairs and has authored a whole host of works in foreign policy and civil-military relations. I sat down with him for a conversation discussing civil-military relations in Japan. We talked about the current security landscape in East Asia, whether Japan's defense forces are well-structured to deal with new emerging threats, and how Japan's civil-mil relations between its self-defense forces and its civilian principles impact Japan's readiness and force structure. Take a listen and tell us what you think. So, Steve, thanks very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Haz. Before we start talking about the Japanese self-defense forces, uh, I kind of wanted to ask you, what's your take on the current security landscape for Japan? What would you categorize as their major threats and concerns? Sure. Uh, until recently, I would have argued that Japan is one of the most threatened countries in the world, but Ukraine has surpassed them. But Japan and South Korea vie for being more, who's more threatened because they both face North Korea. They both face uh, China. The, on the average day, the Japanese air self-defense force scrambles twice to deal with either Russian or Chinese planes approaching their airspace. They've got Chinese ships going uh, nearby. Uh, they've got uh, the North Koreans sending missiles overhead in their tests. Um, and, North, and they've also had you know, North Koreans engaged in violence against Japan. There have been uh, stories in the past of, of North Korean agents uh, abducting people. Uh, so in terms of its threat environment, I would say it's severe. Uh, and that, you know, obviously China, with its potential ambitions towards Taiwan, the Senkaku Islands, which are contested between uh, China and, and Japan, and, and uh, Ch uh, Chinese have done all kinds of things, including having Coast Guard ships spend a lot of time there, and the Chinese Coast Guard is not exactly a Coast Guard. And there's even a contested island with the South Koreans. The South Koreans are very happy to, to, to have that ongoing dispute over an island that they grabbed while Japan was defenseless, literally defenseless in the aftermath of World War II. So uh, it's a pretty hostile neighborhood for, for Japan. That's a lot to unpack. And each of those threats, I imagine, would also have very different responses, right? I mean, the way you're going to react to the North Korean threat is going to be different from China, et cetera. So, I mean, how would you say that the defense and security communities in Japan um, are prepared in terms of dealing with these threats? I mean, are they well-structured? Are they well-equipped? Is Japan where it needs to be to match this threat level that you just described? I think it's the stories about Japan are interesting because people say, well, they only spend 1% of their GDP, so therefore they don't have a lot. Well, people forget Japan still has one of the world's largest, most powerful, technologically advanced economies. And so they actually spend a fair amount. I would argue they misspend, but we can argue about that about most countries. But one of the strange statistics I learned when I was there a few years ago, which I think would surprise most people, is that Japan spends roughly 50% of its budget on its army. 
And that would seem to be bad allocation since its threats from both Russia and China, uh, from Russia, China, and North Korea are all involve air and sea and not really land. I, I don't think we, we can expect to see a, an invasion of Japan anytime too soon. And if that were to happen, they would first have to defeat Japan's Air Force and Japan's Navy. So I, I think that's um, a mistake. During the Cold War, the, the Japanese did have significant army units in the north that deal with uh, their disputes over, over the Kurils in the north. Uh, they were hoping to settle that dispute with Putin. That never worked out. Uh, Abe was always hopeful to have a deal, but, that, but as I said, that didn't work out. It's interesting what Japan is doing lately, because in the past, Japan had, had a military that was pretty well designed, because it was always built with Americans in mind. It was always built to support the Americans. So the restrictions on, on Japanese behavior, which we'll talk about in a little bit, meant it was a very defensive force. And so they didn't have amphibious capabilities. They didn't have aircraft carriers. Uh, didn't have strike aircraft as much as they had, air, you know, a military that was designed to defend Japanese waters, clear out mines for the American ships, and support the Americans when they would do airstrikes into North Korea or China or wherever else. And what we've seen in the last few years is a shift uh, towards more offensive capability, for want of a better term, where they've invested in some amphibious capability. And they've invested in what was always sort of a fiction. Uh, we don't have aircraft carriers. We have through-deck destroyers, which was a way to refer to their helicopter carriers. Well, their helicopter carriers have now been in the process of being reinforced so that way they can fly F-35s. So they, they're, they are buying and they're going to be having available for their, I want to say two, but I could be wrong about that, uh, two ships that can sustain air operations. So that's pretty striking because it's not entirely clear to me where they would need to send these ships because Japan itself is an aircraft carrier for the entire region. So I would say they're not as well equipped as they used to be. I think they're doing stuff that it's not really fit into the larger strategic picture. So that, that's where I think things stand today. So would you say that these, I mean, you're alluding that many of these perhaps decisions that are being made about defense force structure uh, might be slightly misaligned. I mean, who's making these decisions? Is it primarily driven by defense officials? Is it driven by, you know, civilian leadership? Is it driven by the prime minister? I mean, who, in Japan, who makes these major decisions related to defense policy? I think that's a really good question, and I'm still not entirely sure what the answer to that is. Uh, I know that the diet, the, their, their parliament is entirely out of it, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a few minutes. Their minister of defense is rotate. They, they, they replace them on an average of 10 months. They're usually somebody who doesn't have a military background. So, you know, you don't get Donald Rumsfeld's Robert Gates walking through and having a major impact on the future of the, of the Japanese defense. So I wouldn't say the defense minister does it. The, the classic story about Japan is that the bureaucrats run the place. But I'm not sure who those bureaucrats are. I, I think Abe, when he was in power, Prime Minister Abe was making some of these decisions. But I think this was mostly the different services with their own interests pushing their own agendas. So, for instance, why have an amphibious force? If you ask the, Ar the, the, the Navy and the Air Force, they're like, we don't need amphibious forces. You ask the Army, and they're very committed to it. And I think it's the Japanese ground staff, self-defense force, is determined to have a mission in the 21st century. 
and their mission is to reclaim islands that the Chinese take away. And one can argue that these amphibious forces are useful for other things, but the basic idea is that they want to have this force so that way if the Chinese were to seize the Senkakus or someplace else, that the Japanese could take those islands back. And I think this is mostly aimed to protect their budget, because again, as I mentioned, they have 50% of the budget, but that doesn't really make a lot of sense unless you unless they're doing most of the responsibility for air defense. If they're the ones who've got the air defense missiles, then maybe it makes some kind of sense. But I'm not too sure about that. Yeah, and I mean, in the, the amphibious force you're talking about is the you know Japanese ground self defense forces recently uh, instant or recently instated their new you know amphibious force capabilities. I think they've got like several thousand, like three thousand personnel trained to conduct amphibious operations to include you know amphibious invasions, etc. Right. Yeah, it's a brigade, and I'm not sure what use of, of having a brigade is uh, in the 21st century. I mean, the, gra- the ground staff has had a, an important role to play in emergency relief. Japan is known for having tsunami and, and earthquakes, and they played a major role in, what was it, 2011 with the Fukushima uh, disaster. So that, that that's a role the Army plays, but it's really strange otherwise that half the defense budget goes to the army given that japan's strategic position and so some of the points you're making allude to the suggestion that the japanese defense officials or actual senior military senior defense force officials have a lot of influence in terms of where the funding goes what decisions are made for force structure and perhaps you know the the civilian overseers or the, the principals as we might say uh might not really be as involved this contrasts a little bit with kind of my own personal engagements that I've had with uh, like Japanese ground self-defense force officers, many of whom will comment that they feel very weak politically or that the, you know, the SDF is very weak uh, from a political perspective. And they often feel like they're at the mercy of these politicians who a lot of whom have no military experience and a lot of whom also uh, seem to not really respect the mission of the SDF in general. Um, but you're saying that you know, despite all of this, there's still a lot of autonomy that the military or the defense establishment is able to exercise in Japan. Yeah, and this is a weird contradiction, right? So the civilians don't really disrespect the military, and the military feels disrespected. And so it sets up a weird dynamic where the Ministry of Defense, when you talk to them about what their mission is, their mission is to protect the military from the civilians, which is not how we would conceive of like DOD. DOD's job is to oversee the armed forces and to make sure the armed forces get the stuff that they want, but within constraints, and, right? Whereas in Japan, there's a, you know, in talking to mem- people in the Ministry of National Defense, I'm uh, sorry, Ministry of Defense, they think that their job is to protect the military from the civilians. At the same time, the civilians are almost entirely disinterested. That the major debate in the diet continues to be whether the SDF should exist or not. Not what its force structure should be, not what its personnel policy should be, not what you know what its operations should be. It's entirely about the old debate is still here, which is in the aftermath of World War II, they attached Article 9 to the Constitution, which said that the J- Japan cannot have a military. I mean, it really says almost exactly that. I mean, I don't know, I don't read Japanese, but the English translation, says Japan is not to have a military. Yeah, so that's why they call them self-defense forces, and that's why they go through all kinds of gym- language gymnastics to talk about their military, because it's a military. They'll say, we don't have a military, we have a self-defense force. And it's Japan's got one of the world's largest and most advanced air forces. It's got one of the world's largest and most advanced navies. 
they sure as hell look like a Navy when you see them out in the, at sea. It's not just, you know, Coast Guard vessels. It's it's a Navy. It's a real Navy. Um, and the same thing with Air Force. Air Force is, combines domestic production and, and the, you know, the best American planes that, that, that have been made. And they are quite capable. And it looks like a military. But they don't call it that because there's this whole fudge about Article 9. And uh, Prime Minister Abe tried to, or was there were various efforts he wanted to do to try to either revise Article 9 itself or at least alter the interpretation of it. And he did more of the latter than the former. Uh, he did at times have enough votes to change the Constitution, but it was very divisive. And one of his coalition partners, one of the key coalition partner, the Kameto Party, is supposed to be a pacifist party. So it was even though he had the votes, kind of, it was always going to be something that if he burned a lot of political capital on this, he would have had been had as much political capital for something else. So he never did it in his long time in office. And so Article 9 remains to be you know, on the books, and it's a constraint. It doesn't constrain people as much as you think, because Japan has a military, despite saying it doesn't have a military. But as a result, the politicians don't do the things that you, that you think politicians should do, in taking seriously what a military is, what its job is, and overseeing it, because the debate still is about whether should we, we should have this thing or not. And it, it turns out to be a massive distraction, I think. Is it is it almost like the politicians just don't want to address it because to address it would be accepting that there is indeed a military? Maybe perhaps like the Huntingtonian thing where, uh, you know, military officers are supposed to be, quote unquote, apolitical, and then by, you know, but just kind of like that that's like not a, I don't say a convenient excuse, but it's a way for them to not really address the problem, but in the, but it's still happening mm -hmm. and it kind of leads to blind spots, if you will, to these officials. I think that's a fair interpretation. I think, I think part of it is it goes back to some of the, it's not just that the military should exist. It's also a sort of a disrespect in that of the modern democracies, it's hard to find one that had a worse set of civil relations before they became a democracy. Uh, we forget that World War II, it wasn't the German military that pushed Germany into World War II. It, didn't, it wasn't the German military that did all kinds of things. It, it, you know, it, wasn't, it didn't perform wonderfully. But uh, in Japan, you know, they had a series of coups and they had a series of assassinations where the, the radicals in the, in the army, you know, would kill people who were, you know, seeking a way out of the war uh, or, or, or trying to avoid the war before it happened. Uh, and so up until recently, uh, military people in uniform were not allowed in the prime minister's residence because the prime minister's residence had been the site of coup attempts in the past. When we talk about the diet, the military rarely, rarely shows up there. And they don't testify. They, they usually are sitting behind the Ministry of Defense and the Minister of uh, Defense is being asked questions. And the funny thing about this is on that aspect, the military is quite happy. That when my conversations with military, senior military officers in Japan, they would talk about how American military officers complain about how much time it takes to prepare to speak in front of Congress. And, and the Japanese officers were like, oh, this is great. We don't have to spend all this time preparing to testify. And I was like, this is bad. You should be testifying. We should be hearing from you to explain what you're doing. Um, and there, there's just no desire on the part of the parties in Japan to, to, to speak to the military. And so there's disinterest. There's ignorance. The journalist community is not... You know, they're, they're, there's lots of defense journalists, but they're in the club. They they want to be in, they want to be have access in exchange for access. They don't really engage in criticism. Um, there's not the the depth of think tanks 
that you get in other countries that critically examine what the Japanese military is doing. When we speak of civilian control of the military, I, I have a broad idea of that. That includes, you know, the the press, think tanks, academics outside the military that can provide a critical perspective. And there's not that much there. There, there's you probably count the number of civ mill scholars in Japan on less than a hand, maybe only a finger or two. It's, it's just not something that people spend a lot of time studying. Yeah, I mean, all this contrasts quite a bit from how civil military relations is studied in the U.S. or how we interpret it in the United States. I mean, I know you're, I know you're from Canada, but um, you know, from from the U.S. perspective, lots of divergence here. What are some of the other major risks that come from this Japanese model of CMR as it exists today? Well, for instance, I already mentioned that there may be procuring things that don't make a lot of sense, and in fact, antagonize neighbors. I mean. The last time Japan had aircraft carriers and amphibious capability, they used it quite extensively in the neighborhood. And so it's very offensive, very uh, bothersome to the countries around them. Uh, and I'm not sure it gives them a whole lot more capability that really adds to, you know, makes them more secure. So I think it's a diplomatic cost. So I think that's important. Another thing is they're not, they haven't really done the homework for the environment that they're in, which is, as far as I understand it, in my conversations I had with senior air self-defense forces uh, staff, they haven't really worked out what the rules of engagement are for what happens if a Japanese or, or Russian pilot keeps heading forward, right? They turn around, but what happens if they don't turn around? And the answer was, well, we'll then figure it out. Like, you're not that far away. You have no time for this. So I worry that they haven't really done the, the hard work of figuring out what are, the, what are the contingencies and how do you respond in the case that the, the Chinese keep flying at, directly at Tokyo or wherever else. What about partnership across agencies? Like, for example, here, despite, you know, I mean, there's tensions at times, but you could argue at the end of the day, State Department and Department of Defense in the U.S., they're working on similar agendas. There's a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a lot of effort put in there to try to coordinate the activities between the different departments. I mean, I saw that when I worked at embassies abroad. Um, you know, is that cooperation across the diplomacy versus the defense angle in Japan? Is that you know, is that, is that, does that exist or is it, is there an effort there? Or? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, part of it is they don't have the experience. So, you know, in, in Afghanistan, for instance, we had all these PRTs and all this whole government effort. We meaning United States, Canada, Britain, Germany, Norway. Japan wasn't present in Iraq. They were in Iraq, but they weren't present the same way where they, they had a, a pre-RT kind of thing. They had elements of it, but I, I, I'm not exactly sure how well they cooperated, but I, I, I have to imagine they haven't really got the same kind of experience. I do think there's rivalry. The budgetary rivalry is pretty serious um, between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Defense. But I think the most important agency is the Ministry of Finance, and I think that drives a lot of, lot of stuff in Japan. Uh, but I can't really say how well they're diplomats and their generals go along, because I, I just don't know about, enough about that part. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I want to go back to the discussion on Article 9, just because that's where so much of the discussion is generally when we talk about you know Japanese defense forces or the, or the uh, CMR. What, what is the current interpretation on it, and what can the Japanese SDF legally be expected to do, or what are they authorized to do during conflicts? They are not supposed to wage war uh, offensively. So the idea is that they, they cannot engage in offensive operations in any 
meaningful kind of way unless they're attacked. And then they're attacked, then they have more discretion. And there's the, the big debate has been, well, what happens if you see the North Koreans spinning up their missiles? Can you strike them first? And the debate in Japan is unsettled. They, they haven't really made up their mind about whether they can preempt uh, a North Korean missile strike. They are developing some of the systems to do that, and they're thinking about it, but I don't think they've really resolved that particular issue. Of Abe, when he did not get the Constitution amended, he did have a big discussion about reinterpreting Article 9, and they did a, they did a big sales job. They brought in random Canadian academics, amongst others, to explain what their new interpretation was. And the new interpretation was important in two ways, I want to say. One is it meant in the past that if there were Japanese ships and, and let's say, American or Canadian ships nearby, and the Canadian or American ships were attacked and the Japanese ships weren't, their hands were tied, they couldn't do anything about it. Now it seems to be the case that under that scenario, the Japanese could respond. That they, 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 they wouldn't have to make a major decision they, wouldn't, they would be allowed to, to participate in that battle. Uh, so you wouldn't have this odd thing where you have this military exercise where these Japanese ships are like right next to an American aircraft carrier and then they have to sail away or something in the middle. They would be able to fire back. So I think that's different. They had changed the rules for peacekeeping operations so they could do peacekeeping operations. They were, they were interested for a while in learning from others that had much more experience in peacekeeping to figure out how to do that. And that reinterpretation would allow them not just to do peacekeeping, but to use violence in case the people they, that were, they were supposed to be protecting were attacked. So it used to be in peacekeeping missions that avoid all violence. And then in this aftermath of reinterpretation, they could engage in violence if the civilians that they were among were being attacked. And so that was a, a significant change. Because before that, the, the SDF was pretty useless in most peacekeeping scenarios because they couldn't use violence unless they were directly attacked. Uh, and if they stay on base, that doesn't happen too often. But, and that was the story in Iraq. That there was some controversies about the Iraq mission because they stayed mostly on base, but they also contributed uh, airplanes to move stuff around. And so the question was, were those airplanes being used to facilitate the American war or are they used to spread humanitarian stuff? Um, and also, were the Japanese bases and places that were subject to violence? Well, you know, and during Iraq, lots of the country were subject to violence. So it was only like seven or eight years later, there was a controversy in Japan about what were the violent acts that were going on and how close we were to it? And were you lying to us about how violent things were? So I would say the whole uh, Article 9, how to live with it, is very unsettled, very controversial. It's not very clear to, to most folks about what is and what is not legal or and what is not allowed politically. Some of the points that you mentioned about Japanese assistance in Iraq or the you know, creation of these amb uh, amphibious forces, aircraft carriers, I mean, it's a very fine line between you know, improving defensive capabilities based off of the realities underground versus something that could be interpreted as developing offensive military capabilities. And like you mentioned, a lot of this still seems like it's very ambiguous. That can't be reassuring for many of Japan's neighbors, not all of whom, you know, the U.S. or Canada or the Western nations have a, have a hostile or I shouldn't say hostile, but like a, a competitive uh, relationship with. Well, you we can just say with the South Koreans, right? Because the relationship between Japan and South Korea is still not so friendly. And it's a real challenge because in order to deal with Japan, I mean, sorry, in order to deal with China, in order to deal with North Korea, you'd think that the South Koreans 
and the Japanese would get along. They're both democracies. They're both American allies. Why can't we have like a mini NATO to deal with all these threats? And the answer is that Japanese and the South Koreans don't get along, that the South Koreans don't feel as if the Japanese have apologized enough for the, the, the World War II and pre-World War II history. The Japanese think that the South Koreans should get over it. So when the Japanese develop these kinds of capabilities, it's not very reassuring to the South Koreans. I, I remember when I was there, there had been some sort of drill that the Japanese were practicing how to evacuate their people from South Korea if things got hot there. And the ja South Korean press played it up as if the, the Japanese were planning invasion. You know, they're practicing their invasion skills. And so Japan has no ability to invade South Korea, but um, the, the relationship itself is so fraught that it's very hard for them to, to, to reassure the South Koreans. And then when they develop these capabilities, that doesn't ha help. And then when you've got, you know, how, how do the Indonesians feel about this? How do the Philippines feel about this? You know, there's a lot of countries in the region that have a long memory. And, and the last time the Japanese had these capabilities, they used them very destructively uh, in the neighborhood. So I don't think having these capabilities really helps them a lot. I think some of these capabilities don't, you know, hurt them politically. And I just don't think there's a, a good enough national conversation about these choices, that these things happen to be going on. And I, I just don't think that that's debated within the media, within, um, within the diet, as much as you'd think they would be. Yeah, so even though these are you know, significant issues, all the all the oxygen in the room is sucked up by you know these discussions about Article Nine, but these other peripheral issues are having almost just as much of an impact in terms of international relations or foreign policy for Japan, um, you know, outside of Article Nine. Yeah, and and for the South Koreans, Chinese, and North Koreans and South Koreans, uh, these are not peripheral issues. They they see these as Japan is rearming and. It's very striking, uh, as, as I did, did most of my work early in my career on, in, in European uh, situations, on NATO, things like that. And it's just a, so night and day between, you know, we don't have a constant conversation between the French and the Germans about World War II, or between the Poles and the Germans about World War II. Now, there was some discussion when Germany was unified in, in the early 90s about what that might mean. But up until last week, nobody was expecting Germany to, to, to spend a lot more money on its defense and, and engage in anything that seems like aggression. Whereas Japan, which has done, a, you know, has, has its hands far more tied in a lot of ways, uh, there's a lot more suspicion about. One thing I should note is I would say there's a strange thing in Japan where the military is left mostly to its own devices about you know, equipping itself and things like that. I would say that the politicians, you know, are going to be very fearful about deploying them. So they would want to get consensus to do anything. So even though they have more capability than they've had in the past, um, I don't think these things are going to get used anytime too soon because the political costs and political dynamics of just trying to make a decision by the prime minister to deploy them someplace is, is going to be difficult at best. So... I do think that when we go back to that story at the top where you talk about how the military officers you've communicated with, I think they're, they're right in that they are controlled by the civilians in the sense that they don't get to deploy. Um, I don't think the civilians are very well aware or very much in the weeds of, of what they're doing, but the on-off switch is really set on off, and it's, it's really hard to imagine how somebody would flip the switch and say, okay, you guys, we need you to do something. Now, if that switch got flipped, I'm not sure the Japanese military would be ready to do that because I don't know 
how good they are, and I don't know how practiced they are. Um, I do think one of the dynamics that we've forgotten about is that when the Australians were thinking about buying submarines, they were originally thinking about buying Japanese submarines. And from what I heard, they, the Australians moved away from Japan uh, long before they made that agreement that they then dumped with the French mm. because they, they just sensed that the Japanese ship uh, submarines were not really well built for war. Mm. Because, again, the Japanese just haven't been tested in, in 80 years. Uh, and that means that, you know, can they do, can they fight fires on their ships? Can they, can they operate in a way that, you know, would be stressful in, in, in stressful circumstances? And it's just, it's just not proven, uh, and they're not tested and they've been left to their own devices. Um, and, uh, that creates great doubt about what they can really do when push comes to shove. Yeah. So, I mean, with all this said about all the different, you know, issues, concerns, structures, et cetera. What now? I mean, what do you think is what do you think are the most immediate concerns for Japan's defense uh, community, given kind of the many things we just talked about regarding the situation with Japanese CMR? Are there any you know reforms that need to be implemented, you know, ASAP or within you know X number of years, far fairly soon? I think that you know the striking thing is that Abe changed the national security, created a national security council. So that way there'd be more thinking about national security issues. But that was really on the civilian side of things. They did a better job of, of developing the institutions on the civilian side of things. But that wasn't really aimed at civilian control of the military. And so I think I think they knew, you know, the Ministry of Defense is pretty young. It was really established only in the last 20 years. So I think they need to do a they need to have a a culture change to think about what is the role of the Ministry of Defense. And I think they need to change it from being aimed at protecting the military or the SDF from, from the diet to how does the Ministry of Defense oversee the competing demands made by the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force? I think that that's, in the short term, that's the most important thing they can do. I, I am currently doing a book project where, which compares the world's democracies on their legislatures and what roles they play. I just don't see the diet changing anytime soon to taking seriously civilian uh, control of the military. So I do think that it, it really is about modernizing uh, them OD, having them think seriously about what their role is. I, I think that's the most important thing. I also think it'd be great if there were more think tanks focused on this to provide critical ideas from outside. There are a few, but I think there could be more uh, just really asking tough questions about, are these the things we need? Do we have the plans that we need? Uh, are we exercising in realistic ways? Are we learning lessons from our exercises? So that way we're actually getting more capable. So that way, you know, if something bad were to happen, we'd be able to deal with it. Okay. Well, one last current events question. You know, recently, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe made some news when he commented that Japan may need to reconsider its position on nuclear weapons following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the matter? Is it just signaling? Is there some real significance here or... Uh, I thought I thought if anything like that were to happen, it would happen when Trump was president, because I think one of the greatest earthquakes that Canada had politically was the uncertainty about the American commitment that that Trump really indicated that Trump spent a lot of time bullying Japan to pay its fair share, yada, yada, yada. And vis-a-vis -vis Russia, Japan doesn't need to have nuclear weapons because it has the American nuclear umbrella over it. Uh, and the American nuclear umbrella vis-a-vis -vis Japan is quite credible. It's it's equal in credibility to the defense, you know, the NATO umbrella. So I don't think, 
I don't know what Abe was saying. I, I, I don't know what he was thinking, I should say. Uh, if they can't change Article 9, then the country that has experienced a nuclear attack is still unlikely to develop now. It's always been said that it would take less than a year for them to be able to put the pieces together because they have an aerospace industry, they have a nuclear power industry. It wouldn't be that hard for them to put the pieces together to make bombs and be able to look, to roll over them. But I just, I have no idea what Ali was saying. I think retired or ex-prime ministers can be wildly irresponsible. Uh, and it helps them get back in the news and makes them feel important. I, I don't know what Ali was thinking because this is not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, again, if they can't reform Article 9, when he had a majority, super majorities in both houses of the Diet, uh, then he, they're certainly not going to be able to make nuclear weapons anytime soon. Uh, well, on that note, uh, that's about all the time we have for today. Well, Professor, thanks so much for coming on to the show and sharing your thoughts and wisdom on this. We really appreciate you having you. Thank you, Hazel. My pleasure. And that concludes this edition of the Soch Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Professor Sademan. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a five-star review. If you have any comments, critiques, or suggestions, please email us at sochresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research, lab, at westpoint.edu. We always love to hear from our listeners. The Social Podcast is produced, edited, and recorded by faculty members of the Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. Military Academy, West Point. However, the views expressed in this podcast belong to those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. Thanks again to the West Point Band for letting us use their music. This is Major Yano, signing off.